if you're not able to counsel with tears, you're not counseling the way Jesus did. Biblical counseling is not as biblical as it needs to be if it does not happen in a context of compassion for the struggling soul. This type of counseling context that I'm talking that I'm talking about here transcends the counseling office. When I talk about biblical counseling, I am not just only talking about what most people would think of as a counseling office, perhaps two people sitting across from each other with a big desk in between them. That is biblical counseling. But the type of counseling context that I'm talking about, it transcends that. I'm talking about Biblical counseling that happens in your marriages, in your families, in your homes, in your churches, in work environments, and any other place where you're helping someone with God's Word. If you're not able to counsel with tears, you're not counseling the way Jesus did. One of the passages that I like to visualize as I think about Christ thinking about broken people is Matthew 23, 37. This is the Old Jerusalem, Old Jerusalem passage that you have probably read many times, and you can feel the passion, you can feel the emotion as Jesus just long for these people to come to him, to come to God and to reconcile the brokenness in their lives. And of course, you know, John 11, where Jesus wept at the tomb of his friend who had died, there is an element to all of our discipleship that has compassion in it. Compassion is critical. And when it's not there, it can be experienced and it can it can have an adverse effect on the person who is receiving that kind of non-compassionate counseling. Now, I'm not talking about refraining from rebuking someone. There is all there is a time for corrective care in our relationships, whether it's in a biblical counseling office or as I mentioned our marriages, our families, our homes, our churches, our work environments, or any other place where you're helping someone with God's Word. It's not a negation, a negation of correction, but it is always the insertion of compassion along with your correction. Someone sent me a note. I'm going to share it with you in just a moment. I'll I'll make it anonymous. I'll call this person a defeated counselee. They sent me a short note. I'm going to read it to you so it will give you an idea of why I am sharing this podcast with you. Welcome to Your Daily Drive. I am Rick Thomas. I'm so glad that you are listening. And if you want to read everything that I'm going to share with you, you can do that. Go to our website, rickthomas.net. Here is the article and the title of this Your Daily Drive podcast, What to Do when your biblical counseling is harsh. Here's the note from the defeated counselee. Rick, I just came back from my biblical counseling appointment. It was a horrible experience. I agreed with him that I had some things to change, but his manner of helping me was harsh and alienating. He did not come across as a happy person, and I felt like I was inconveniencing him. Perhaps it was because he had a lot to do or was distracted by other things, 
rather than helping me work through some of the long-term shaping influences in my life, it felt more like a sin hunt. After he felt like he understood my problem, he rebuked me, gave a few scriptures, and then continued to admonish me for another 30 minutes. I know I need to change, but I was expecting something different. I'm not one of those snowflake people, but I left more defeated after biblical counseling than when I dragged myself to his office. I'm not looking for you to manage my emotions, but I do have a concern about this method of so-called counseling. Is this the nature of biblical counseling? Please help me understand. Thank you, defeated counselee. There's the note, again, the title of the podcast and what I'm about to share with you, what to do when your biblical counseling is harsh. All of you who are doing biblical counseling, specifically in the traditional understanding of the counseling office, I would encourage you to read this article. And if you're part of a counseling team, I would appeal to you to share this article and the podcast with your counseling team. It is imperative for us, those of us who do formalized biblical counseling, meaning we have some kind of shingle hanging out there, whether it is a parachurch counseling ministry or you're doing it within the local church or maybe some other place or context. But we need to understand this because this is a problem I've been doing biblical counseling for multiple decades now, and I will say that this is not the first time by a long shot that I have received a note like this or I've had a face-to-face conversation with someone who had shared something similar to this. This is a thing, and it's not an anomaly. And then, of course, for those of you who are doing biblical counseling in all of these other contexts, marriages, families, homes, churches, work environments, or any other place where you're helping someone with God's word, meaning every other believer. All Christians need to understand this idea of corrective care because it is a problem. My first response to the individual that wrote to me is, I'm sorry that your counseling session did go the way did not go the way that you expected. I know that you are hurting, and I do want to help, but I need for you to understand that I will not be able to speak specifically to what you experienced during your counseling since I was not there. I hope to be careful here because I I do not want to speak unkindly of your counselor or to characterize him uncharitably. Proverbs 18, 17 says, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. And every believer needs to notate this verse. You need to sticky note this to your brain because you will. You have heard situations like this. Maybe it didn't have anything to do with biblical counseling per se, but someone shared something that happened to them that was adverse, and it will be a temptation for you to take up an offense, and you've only heard one side of the story. And it is imperative that we understand that in every situation that happens where a person is sharing what happened to them, no matter how horrific it is, you have to have this in your mind that you're only hearing half the story. But with that said, 
it's just as important to know that I, I don't want you to hear that I do not believe you. I am not saying that at all. But I must use biblical wisdom when trying to understand and resolve a matter, especially when the other person is not present. I'm sure if someone came to me saying something negative about you, that you would want me to exercise the same discernment and not uncharitably judge you. So this is an instance where you want to treat the person who is not present the way that you would want them to treat you if you were the person not present. Not being there, as in, I was not there. That is a big deal. Now, but, based on what you are saying, and without talking to the counselor, there is an element of sin-centered counseling that is a standard way that some biblical counselors operate. It's just a fact. And though I cannot speak to your situation directly, I have heard the harsh complaint many times, too many times. And the two most common criticisms that I have seen with biblical counseling, as far as my experience is concerned, the two things are harshness toward counselees and a lack of discernment when it comes to critical analysis. I wish it were not true, but part of the problem is the unintended consequence of what I call the false continuum. The false continuum is certification equals qualification, meaning because you are certified as a biblical counselor, you are qualified to do biblical counseling, and that is a false continuum. It just ain't true. Every person who has a document that says they completed required biblical counseling training, it does not mean they are good at doing biblical counseling. And sadly, though, too many people believe in this false continuum. And there are a lot of so-called certified counselors who just aren't good at it. And that is a fact. I'm not saying that your guy is not qualified to do biblical counseling in a formalized way, though that could be the case. But many of these counselors would do better at being biblical friends who do the work of disciple-making with folks who don't need their long-term formalized care. The, you know, we, we talk about Romans fifteen fourteen that everybody is qualified to counsel and, and all of that, and I get it, and that is true, but there are degrees of gifting. Everybody can sing as well. I can sing, but nobody's asking me to stand on a stage and do a solo. There are degrees of gifting. Every person can sing, but everybody doesn't sing well. Everybody can counsel, but everybody doesn't counsel well. And perhaps many of these so-called biblical counselors who have a certification, maybe they should just be doing the work of disciple-making with a few folks who do not need that formalized care. You see, there is a mysterious line between compassion and correction that every counselor has to navigate. And it is true that all of us fail at discerning where to locate this line between compassion and correction, but it should not be a bad habit. 
meaning we're habituated and and not discerning that line and we are harsh regularly, people should not characterize us this way. Compassion with no correction is sub-biblical, and I do want you to hear that. You don't want to cut off the correction part and just be compassionate. Well, that's not compassion. It really isn't. So compassion with no correction is sub-biblical, just as correction with no compassion is wrong. I'm sure some counselors do not know that there is a line. Their counseling worldview is mostly sin-centered rather than heart-centered. And if this is the case, they will nearly always miss the contours of a person's heart, especially how the painful shaping influences in the counselee's life have beaten them so far down that to get up from the mat is nearly impossible. We know that we're fallen individuals. I mean, everyone is a sinner, and we do periodically sin. It would be fantastic if all of us were faithful to repent every time that we sin. But that is just not the case, as some sins linger with us. Now, with that said, the person helping us should always exemplify compassion along with the call to repent. There is a built-in liability with biblical counselors in that too often we miss what I call the living room effect of counseling, choosing instead a surgical center approach where it focuses more on the sin committed than the person sinning. Some biblical counselors do not believe in making friends with their counselees. They don't want to get to know them by walking with them, spending time with them, caring for their souls, overlooking their offenses as much as they can and should, while lovingly bringing the needed correction at a much slower pace. Part of this problem is the nature of the counseling office. You see, biblical counseling typically works with a time frame that has a designated start and finish, which could be six or, or more counseling sessions. You see, the Bible does not teach discipleship happening within a counseling window with a definite start date and finish date. The Bible teaches counseling happening in the milieu. As you do life together, study the life of Jesus. That is how he counseled in the milieu as he did life with others. He dialogued with them. But traditional biblical counseling sets up an artificial construct that speeds up discipleship to where pragmatics getting results can be more vital than doing soul care. This problem is why counseling can have a sin-hunt element to it. The counselor is after results. He is probably uber busy, and he's looking for the shortest distance between hearing about the problem and providing an answer. Repentance is a gift from God, a gift given, not a demand mandated. Now, I know that you know that you have sin patterns and you have long-term shaping influences that need to change. You stated that. 
in your letter to me. But I'm also aware of how your hurt is much deeper at this point in your life. What I'm saying is that sometimes a person needs space to wobble, to fall, to be imperfect before they need a sharp rebuke. And though the reprimand reprimand is essential, and I I want you to hear that because some of the people that struggle, they're struggling with what I'm saying right now. They say you're just wussified and you've taken compassion too long and you just don't rebuke them. No, the reprimand may be essential, but it is a matter of sequence. When do you do it? Timing. When do you do it? And what is most appropriate at the moment? What parent has not struggled this way? You have a child making poor decisions, and you want to rescue them today. Parents, like biblical counselors, need to remember that repentance is a gift given, not a demand mandated because you said so. And while you do not want to accommodate or overlook a person's sinfulness, You also do not want to ignore their need for another kind of care. And so I'll go back to what I said earlier. A reprimand may be essential. It is a matter of sequence, timing, and what is most appropriate at the moment. Let me share a personal illustration with you. A few years ago, a college student was preaching up a storm, and he was pontificating. This was... My Bible college, my fundamentalist Bible college, where I received my undergrad in in theology. In our fourth year, we got to teach to uh, we got to preach to the student body, and it was one of the favorite times of the year for all of us because we got to hear our colleagues preach, and we also got our shot in our senior year to preach. And of course, we're a bunch of young Elijahs, a bunch of novices, a bunch of Elijah wannabes would be more accurate. And so our preaching was typically more, (laughs) it was more full of emotion than than wisdom. And, And I'll never forget this young college student as he was preaching up a storm and what he was pontificating was about. He he said that you know when you're when you're downcast, we, we should pick it up. We should smile and we should praise God anyway. I sat there listening to the young novice preacher, thinking how I wish I could pick up, pick myself up, and walk in the victory that the Lord had won for me. But honestly, I could not. You see, I had just lost my wife, and I lost my children in a moment. And there was an irreparable hole ripped in the side of my marriage. And there was no cure forthcoming. And while I wanted to sing the victory in Jesus' song, my lips could not form the words. And my heart was not bubbling with that kind of tune. Quite frankly, I wanted to die. What was coming out of me was pain and darkness, and it showed no signs of abating anytime soon. It reminds me of Job 23. He says, Behold, I go forward, but God is not there, and backwards, and I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when when he was working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. That's kind of where I was after my pontificating preacher friend 
had finished, and we were walking out of the the Bible College little auditorium there. I shared my attention with uh, my professor, and he wryly smiled, and he said, yeah, he, he doesn't understand. And then he followed up with this quip, but it makes great preaching. He's right. It makes great preaching, but it's not practical. When the valley of the shadow of death is your new home, this problem of inability, it reminds me of the story of Samson when he was jumping from his bed, not knowing that the power of the Lord had left him. And when he found out he was spiritually bankrupt, he could not shake himself into a better way of being. That is where I was during that dark season of my life. No matter what was said or what was shouted, my life reeked a high heaven, to put it plainly. And without making excuses, as much as I tried, I could not shake myself into a new frame of mind. It is a wisdom issue to know when to rebuke and when to refrain from rebuking. This is what I was talking about earlier when I, I said that there is this there is this mysterious line between compassion and correction, and every counselor has to navigate it. It is a huge wisdom issue to know when to rebuke and when to refrain. But with that said, this one thing I know, if you are going to reprimand a person, they must know that you love them, that you understand them, that you care for them. I am not saying to withhold or to refrain from the reprimand or the rebuke, but that kind of counseling, as far as knowing the person and understanding and caring for them, that kind of counseling is almost a bridge too far for some biblical counselors, and that makes my heart sad. The one thing you don't want to do in this situation is to overfocus on the poor counselor or his counseling. You see, there is another side to this story that is just as common as the harsh and unsympathetic counselor. Perhaps some of the folks who are listening to this podcast, they have fallen into this ditch. Let me explain. That is when someone does something terrible to you, and what they did becomes your primary point of focus. I'm not saying you're making this mistake. Perhaps you aren't. But if it's a temptation, do not make this mistake. Whatever your problem is that sent you to counseling, it is still there. You said that in your letter. You're still struggling. And if you add the counselor's blunder to your original problem, it will only complicate your struggles. And you may take on a victim's mindset. You see this attitude all the time on social media where a person will talk about what others did to them. And I'm not delegitimizing what they did to them. I'm not saying it is not real. All of us have had disappointing relational experiences. But you must remember that God is in those times too. God was in the counseling office with you. And rather than being problem-centered, you must fight to be God-centered. So how are you responding to your counseling disappointment? Now, you have heard in this podcast, I've made a strong and compelling case that there is no place 
for that kind of counseling in a situation as you have described it. And so I am not justifying or, or condoning that type of counseling at all. But my question is, how are you responding to your counseling disappointment? Are you problem-centered or God-centered, specifically in this situation? For those of you who, well, you didn't write the letter, but you have had that disappointing experience, relational experience. Are you problem-centered or God-centered? Are you complicating the original problem by adding this poor this poor counseling situation to your problem? One of the ways you can assess yourself on this matter is by examining your heart attitude towards your counselor. And for the rest of you is by examining your heart attitude toward the person who did something unkind to you, harsh to you, or however you want to describe it. Read, I would appeal to you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the first nine verses to gain Paul's attitude toward hurtful people, the Corinthians. I want you to read how he thought about some mean, some very mean people. And once you can adopt his mind on problem individuals, you'll be in the right spot to focus on the reason you went to counseling in the first place, to focus on the original problem and not be overcome by this complicating problem, the bad result of the counseling. Don't fall into the self-pity ditch. And so here are three things that I would appeal to you to you for you to do one pray for your uh, former counselor number two find a new one number three beg god to help you to get off the mat whatever your issue is the title of this podcast is what to do when biblical counseling is harsh now i have a call to action here that is critical for you to read the questions that I'm asking to work through these questions with someone else. Let's jump into them now. Number one, when discipling others, how would you characterize yourself? Are you quick to listen or quicker to speak? Now, of course, we always put our best foot forward, so it would be very good for you to ask the last three people that you helped to answer this question. Will you ask them? Perhaps you need to talk to your family about this. What are their thoughts about your corrective care? Number two, if folks consider you a biblical counselor, well, fantastic. How do they think about your manner of bringing care to them. Will you ask a few people who have received your counseling about your manner of counseling in the context of what I'm talking about in this podcast? Number three, why is it vital to show compassion to the hurting even when their sin is apparent? Do you have an angry edge about you that manifest in your soul care? Why did you answer these two questions the way that you did? And finally, under number three, it reminds me of one of my profs, Wayne Mack. Wayne Mack would say, we have three questions, for example. And then under each question, he would have like 10 questions. And so question number three, there's about three or four of them here. Why is it vital to show compassion to the hurting even when their sin is apparent? Do you have an angry edge about you that manifests in your soul care? Why did you answer the way that you did? And then finally, under number three, do others agree with you? Number four, 
rebukes are restorative are yours? Does your corrective care bring healing or does it alienate you from the person you should be helping? Number five, when someone hurts you, do you linger on the hurt or do you seek God's mind regarding what he's up to through this relational problem the way to know if you're problem-centered or God-centered is by the way you think and talk about what happened to you. All you Facebookers out there and other social media people, you, those of you who live in the Twitterverse, how do you talk about those who have hurt you? The way that you think about them and the way that you talk about them will tell you if you are God-centered or problem-centered. Number six, how do you talk about your relationship problems? Do you sound more like a victim or a victor, even though the problem persists? And then number seven, I'm curious. As you have listened to this podcast, did you take up an offense for the counselee while being uncharitable, meaning being harsh, toward the biblical counselor? As you were listening to this podcast, as you were listening to the story, the letter that the person wrote, as you heard some of my responses to the person, as I agreed with them that this is a problem, did you take up an offense for the counselee? Were you uncharitable toward the biblical counselor? Were you harsh toward them? If you were, then you're just like the biblical counselor, and it would be vital for you to repent. Thanks for listening to the podcast, What to Do When Your Biblical Counseling is Harsh. Your Daily Drive is a production of rickthomas.net, a global community that is seeking to live more productive and inspiring lives. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please go to rickthomas.net, rickthomas.net.